0: one of the uh, one of the pictures that we have of Jesus in the book of revelation is that he has a, a two a sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth and the sword refers to the two-edged nature of the gospel. You see the gospel brings salvation to those who believe and judgment to those who do not believe. There's no middle ground. There is not a third option. You either believe the gospel or you don't. Belief brings salvation. Rejection brings judgment. And the truth of this will be abundantly clear when Jesus returns. Zechariah concludes his prophecy with a very vivid and stark picture of the truth of these words. When Jesus returns, he will bring a sharp two-edged sword. So let us stand together. As we hear the words of Zechariah 14, verses 12 through 21. This is the word of the Lord given to us. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet, their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another. And the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight against Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected. Gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt, and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Let us pray. O Lord, we do thank you. your word. We do come before you this morning with humility, Lord, recognizing that, that these words are not only hard to understand, but they may be very difficult to hear. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit even now would be preparing our hearts and minds, that we would not simply hear what is said. We ask that you'd grant us understanding and that you would apply it to our hearts and our minds that we would be changed. But we pray most importantly through this time That we would see Jesus in a new and fresh way, and that you would use this time to grow our love for him, to grow our desire to worship him in his splendor and in his holiness. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So Zechariah 14 provides us a glimpse into the future. Um, It gives us details of of what will happen when Jesus returns. Last week, Essen took the first half of this chapter as he worked through uh, verses 1 through 11. And and the climax of that passage is found in verse 9 where we see that Jesus will be king over all the nations. He will defeat all of his enemies, and he will establish a kingdom that is safe and secure, a kingdom out of which flows living waters. Well, verses 12 through 21 is just another replay of this plot line. But this time um, Zechariah focuses our attention on the holiness of the kingdom. And he reminds us that there are only two outcomes, there are only two destinations for all the people of the world. Jesus is holy. His kingdom is holy. The question this morning is are we holy? Are you holy? The answer to that question determines whether or not this passage should be an encouragement to you or a warning to you. It was interesting, when I was working on this sermon, I was actually sitting in in Starbucks in Stanton a few days ago, and there were two two men sitting right next to me, and I couldn't help but overhear their conversation. They were clearly pastors, I don't know of what church. One was mentoring the other one, and the younger one was just telling them how the uh, minister who he replaced at his church that all she ever preached on was fire and brimstone, and and the people were just greatly discouraged and needed hope. And as I listened to this conversation, I was thinking to myself, I'm working on a passage that talks about hell, and yet I'm called to preach this. And and the reason why I bring this up is that um, God is honest with us. In this passage before us, we're going to see a picture of hell, we're going to see a picture of heaven. And it's important for us to understand both. Because God is warning those that do not trust him, do not know him, but he's also seeking to encourage us. And so we're going to start with the bad news, but we will get to the good news. So let's look at verses 12 through 15. This is what R.C. Sproul once called the trauma of holiness. You see, there's a popular theory among some atheist scholars that say that the reason why people invented religion was to provide them for hope when they deal with trauma in their lives. In other words, we invented God so that we had a way to deal with natural disasters, or had to deal with sickness or death. We invented a God so that we had somebody either to blame or somebody that we could go to to find some kind of hope. So God was simply a figment of our imagination that helps us cope with trauma. Well, Sproul asked, why would we invent a God that causes us far more trauma than anything the world could throw at us? This is what he says. This holy God that we see in Scripture inspires far greater trauma in those whom he encounters than any natural disaster. Why to redeem us from the threat of trauma would we invent a God whose character is infinitely more threatening than anything else we fear? I can see humanity inventing a benevolent God or even a bad God who is easily appeased, but, we would, but why would we invent a holy God? And the answer is that we wouldn't. We would never invent the holy God of the Bible. Why? Because that's a God that we cannot control. That's a God that we cannot approach on our own terms. The holy God of the Bible is terrifying. And we see that here in these verses. This is a picture of what's going to happen to all the enemies of God when Jesus returns. They will experience plague, panic, and plunder. Now, we're not supposed to understand these things necessarily literally... Rather, Zechariah is painting a very vivid and disturbing picture of what it will be like when Jesus returns to anyone and everyone who opposes him. Jesus is coming to judge them. And first, they will experience a gruesome and terrifying plague. Look, Look again at verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Now, you're not going to find this verse in a Hallmark card, right? It's not going to say, happy birthday. May your flesh rot, may your eyes rot rot out of their sockets, and may your tongue rot in your mouth. This is graphic stuff. Because it's meant to be a warning to the enemies of God. When Jesus returns, he will defeat and judge all of his enemies. And it will not be pretty. They will not be shown mercy. They will not be able to withstand his coming wrath. Look at what Zechariah says. He says, their flesh will rot from their bodies while they are standing on their feet. This is a picture of the absolute pride and confidence that the enemies of God have before him. It's as if they're saying, look at us. We're standing on our own two feet. Look at our power. Look at our strength. Look how awesome we are. There's no, we don't need God. There's nothing to fear from him. But when Jesus returns, their confidence will quickly turn to terror. No one can overcome Jesus. No one will be able to stand against him. Their eyes, which they use to, to lust after things of the word, they will rot away. Their tongues, which they use to speak blasphemy against God, that too will rot away. None will resist. None will escape. All who reject Jesus as king will come under his judgment. And his judgment will be swift, it will be complete, and it will be horrifying. Zechariah paints another picture for us in verse 13. He says, On that day, great panic from the Lord shall fall on them. The coming of Jesus will cause such fear, it will induce panic, that literally the enemies will turn on against one another. And this is a picture that we've seen before. For example, in, in Judges 7, we read about Gideon, and how God asked Gideon to bring only a hundred men to fight against the vast armies of Midian. And they won that battle because God caused panic to come upon his enemies. And they killed each other and they fled. Well, that scene pales in comparison to what's going to happen when Jesus returns. His enemies don't stand a chance. And if that were not enough, look at verse 14. The wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. The enemies of God will be completely plundered. So these verses show us the the absolute defeat, the complete defeat of all of God's enemies when Jesus returns. They will experience plague, panic, and plunder. And that leads us to verse 15. A plague like this plague shall fall on the horses and the mules and the camels and the donkeys and the other beasts in the camps. So even their animals, in a sense, will be plagued. What did they ever do? Well, this just shows us how complete the enemies of God's demise and destruction will be. It also shows us that there will be no escaping. Even the animals will suffer. These verses, they they provide us with a, a chilling picture of the wrath of God. It's sobering. It's alarming. Why? Because it is all true. Jesus will return. And when he returns, he will defeat his enemies and he will judge his enemies And as I said earlier, these are just images, but reality will be far worse than the images that are painted here. One commentator said that these verses teach us about the utter destruction and deterioration everyone who opposes Jesus will experience when he returns. It is a a vision of hell. We see in these verses a picture of personal deterioration. R.A. Finnelson says this, hell is the complete decay of the inner life the unending deterioration of the psyche as all the restraints of common grace are withdrawn, and we are given over to the horror that we have chosen as the wrath of God is poured out upon us, and we are surrendered and given up to the darkness of our own spiritual corruption. There is waiting for anyone who rejects the lordship of Jesus Christ only the blackness of darkness forever. We also see in these verses a picture of relational deterioration. One of my favorite books by um, C.S. Lewis is called The Great Divorce. If you've not read it, I really encourage you to read it. In that book, Lewis paints, uh, talks about a, a town called Greytown. This is the setting for the book. This is a, a town that is dull and lonely. And, and the people in that town are constantly fighting. They're constantly arguing and yelling at each other. And as a result of that, they, they keep moving further and further away from one another. To such a degree that at one point the the town is described in this way. It says that it is a town with millions of square miles of empty houses. It is a place of profound isolation and loneliness. And this is Lewis's picture of hell. Hell is a place of broken relationships and deep, unending loneliness. We also see here a picture of plunder. Plunder is a picture of material deterioration. David Strain said this, All the trinkets for which we live, that our heart crave, to which we run, that we substitute for Christ as the object of our satisfaction and delight, in which we've invested our self-worth and our personal value, if we are found outside of Christ when he comes, they will be stripped away to where you're left bereft and bankrupt and barren, barren and void. It is a chilling picture of hell. So in other words, all the things that we typically look to outside of Christ for comfort, all the things that we we look to to dole the pain from our alienation from God, all the things that we look to to suppress our spiritual awareness, all of those things will be gone forever. So therefore, all of those people who reject Jesus, when they come under his wrath and when they face his judgment, they'll have to face the full weight of that judgment. They'll have to face the full weight of the rejection of him with absolutely nothing to dole the pain and absolutely nothing to hide behind. These verses give us just a glimpse of the judgment of Christ. They provide us with a graphic graphic and terrifying picture of hell. It will be a place of absolute personal, relational, and material deterioration. It will be a place of utter darkness, loneliness, and pain for all eternity. And Zechariah is not the only one who uses language like this to describe the reality of God's judgment. In the book of Revelation... Hell is compared to a lake of fire where people are tormented day and night forever and ever. Even Jesus spoke about hell. Matter of fact, hell is one of the topics he speaks the most about. And He says things like um, comparing hell to the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus also says that hell will be like being in a fire that never goes out. These are harsh and disturbing words. But they are meant to be a warning for you. If you are not trusting in Jesus, if you do not belong to him, this is a warning to you because there is still time. Call on him now. Cry out for mercy and cling to Jesus because Jesus can still save you. It is only in him alone that you are holy. And as we see also in this passage, there is a blessedness to holiness because Zechariah 14 isn't all bad news. Let's turn our attention now to verses 20 and 21. In these verses, we get a glimpse of heaven. Look at verse 20. On that day, this is the day that Jesus returns, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. Now, that phrase, Holy to the Lord, is a a special phrase. It was a a phrase that was inscribed on the turban of the high priest, that is a way of setting him apart so that he could enter the presence of God. It was one of many things that set up the priest apart. And the idea that these words would be inscribed on something so common as the bells on horses is absurd. But when Jesus comes, it will be true. And Zechariah goes on. The pot in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. The common pots in the temple will be just like the sacred bowls that are used to bring sacrifices before the Lord. There will be no distinction between them. Now, this may not seem like a really big deal to us, but to the Jewish people, when they were reading this, these words were astonishing God is holy. He is perfect and pure. Therefore, he can't allow anything that is unholy or anything that is not perfect into his presence. In a sense, God was very unapproachable. But God knew that, and in his great grace and his mercy, he provided a way to to consecrate certain elements. He provided a way to consecrate the, the high priest so that he could come before him and make the appropriate sacrifices on behalf of God's people. Now, he had to do this following a strict set of guidelines in order for him to enter the presence of God he had to do it in the right way at the right time. And we know the reason for that is because God is holy. And we are sinners. We are not holy. But now here in Zechariah we see this picture that once Jesus returns there will no longer be distinction between those things that were sacred and those things that were considered common. There's a, a story I read several years ago about a, a man who was a he was an antiques connoisseur, and so he, on uh, one particular day, he was just walking the streets of San Francisco, kind of going in all the various shops, hoping to find this hidden treasure. You know, he's a, he was a treasure hunter in a sense. And he was in one particular shop, and he was just looking at different things, and, and out of the corner of the eye, he saw there was a, a cat in the corner drinking some milk out of a bowl. Didn't think much of it at first. But then something caught his eye, and he, and he looked a little closer, and he was shocked, because he realized the bowl that the cat was drinking out of was this rare antique bowl from the Ming dynasty worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. He's like, this owner has no idea what he's doing. But he was wise. He wasn't going to point this out, of course. He he was wise about how is he going to get a hold. He finally found this hidden treasure. He's been searching for his whole life. How is he going to get possession of it? So rather than talking about the boy, he started talking about the cat, talking about how much he loves cats and how he's been looking for just the right cat and and lo and behold, here it is. This cat is just the perfect cat for him. So he asked the owner, could he buy the cat? And the, cat, the owner said, no, the cat's not for sale. He's like, well, you don't understand. This is the exact cat I've been looking for my whole life. i tell you what, I'll give you $100 for it. And the owner was like, well, that's really generous. He said, sure, I'll sell you my cat for $100. So he takes the cat, and he's starting to walk out, and he stops. He said, well, you know, I actually have nothing for this cat at my house. I'll tell you what, can, can I just buy his little feeding bowl off of you for $5? And the owner said, well... No, I could never do that. You you don't understand. This is priceless. This is from the Ming Dynasty. It's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. I could never sell this bowl to you. But the amazing thing is, ever since I started feeding my cats out of this bowl, I've sold over a dozen cats. (laughs) Obviously, it's a silly story, um, because who in their right mind would use something so precious as a, a Ming Dynasty bowl to feed cats? But the reason why I bring that up is, is, in a sense, that's what we see what's going on here in Zechariah. When Jesus returns, everything, everything is going to be precious in his sight. Everything is going to be set apart as holy. There will be no distinction between the holy and the common. And that really means, that can only mean one of two things. Either that God will change his standards, and he, and that, which means that he would no longer be holy, or that something has changed all of these common things and made them holy. But we know that God cannot change his standards because God cannot change. God is holy and will always be holy. So what does this mean? It means that when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom, everything that remains after judgment will be sanctified. Everything in his kingdom will be holy. Look at verse 21. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts. Jerusalem and Judah here, this refers to Christ's kingdom. It's a picture of the new heavens and new earth. And everything within them will be holy to the Lord. Now the implication of this is, is amazing. But the most important implication of this is the fact that since they're holy, they also will be in the presence of God. Right now, we're only talking about bells and pots and bowls. These are just things. They will be holy at the coming of Christ. But here, is the most staggering truth of all. You, too, will be holy. If you are following Jesus, if you are trusting in him, then you, too, will be holy. You, too, will be allowed into the presence of God. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 5. He says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, That she might be holy and without blemish. If you are trusting in Christ, those verses apply to you. Those words are true. Jesus is making you holy. You see, Jesus came to save you, but he also came to change you. You see, Jesus is the one who experienced plague, he is the one who experienced plunder, he is the one who took the judgment upon himself, he is the one who had the wrath of God poured upon himself so that all of us who believe don't have to face those things ourselves. He is changing you. As a matter of fact, if you belong to him, you have already been set apart as holy. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, you are being changed piece by piece as you're being conformed more and more into the image of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, you are already holy And by the work of the Spirit, you're becoming more of what you actually already are. Here's here's another way to think about it Jesus has changed you. And now the Spirit is at work making your real self, or sorry, making your current self reflect more and more of your true self. And Jesus has promised to finish the work he's began in each one of us. All of us. All of us who trust in Jesus. We are holy and we will be holy. Therefore, we will be invited into his holy kingdom where all things are holy, where we serve a holy king for all eternity. The holiness of Jesus will permeate the entirety of his kingdom. And this is going to be true for all eternity. That is why Zechariah mentions the traitor at the end of verse 21. He says, There shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Now, the word used here for traitor is actually the word Canaanite. And that word means um, dishonest merchant. And the point that Zechariah is making here is that there has always been, there's always been wickedness and unholiness around God's temple. You know, The place where God dwells, the place where his holiness resides, there's always been unholiness lurking at the doors. Well, that will no longer be true once Jesus returns. Jesus will reign supreme, and there will not even be a hint of sin. There will not even be a hint of unholiness when he returns in his kingdom. It will be eternally secure and holy because Jesus will defeat all of his enemies. He will bring judgment upon all of his enemies. And he will reign forever with absolute authority and righteousness. So this vision of the new heavens and new earth, hopefully this should encourage you. We should long for this day because it will be a day of unimaginable blessing for all of us who believe in Jesus. We will be holy, living in a holy kingdom serving a holy king. Can you be happy in such a place? Think about it this way. What do the following words have in common? Sinful, secular, excluded, imperfect, flawed, broken, damaged, hurt, mourning, sickness, Death. These words will no longer be part of our vocabulary once Jesus returns. Think about that. Rather, we will talk about things like love and joy and happiness and peace and life. Does that give you hope? Listen again to what David Strain says. He says, The the purity and radiance of the Lord Jesus Christ will shine in every home, in every heart will be reflected in every product of human activity, will be seen in every instrument of human culture. Sin will be utterly, irrevocably, universally eradicated. It will be gone. And all will be holy to the Lord. Every person, every child of God who has labored long and battled hard with besetting sin here, on that day will be perfectly and unendingly holy to the Lord. That is good news. Zechariah shows us the holiness of God either brings trauma Or it brings blessing. So what is your reaction to the holiness of God? How do you know which one of these verses apply to you? Because when Jesus comes, he's bringing either a sword or fellowship. Which one applies to you? Well, the answer for that can be found in verses 16 through 19. Look look at verse uh, verse 16. It says, Then everyone who survives... Of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. So Christ's kingdom will be full of people who worship him as king. That's the key to understanding this whole passage. This is also why Zechariah mentions this Feast of Booths. This is one of the the festivals, Jewish festivals, that they celebrated once a year. And during this festival, they would celebrate the harvest. But more importantly, what they were celebrating is they were celebrating God's sovereignty in bringing them out of Egypt, as well as his provision for them, when they were going through the exodus. It was a reminder to them of God's sovereignty over all things, and it was a call for them to continue to worship him alone as God. But not only that, but this is one of the festivals where strangers or outsiders were encouraged to come in as a reminder that God will be God of all the nations. And so when we read about this feast, one other thing about it that's true is it also was a foreshadowing. It was a foreshadowing of Christ and his kingdom that when Jesus comes, he will establish a kingdom of all nations and he will rule sovereignly over that kingdom and he will be the one that provides for his people. And so that's why Zechariah mentions this here. It's a picture of people trusting in God as the true God and worshiping Jesus as the only true king. It is only those people who worship Jesus that will be allowed into his kingdom. Everyone else will face his judgment and wrath. True worship of the true God And of the true king is the dividing line. All worshipers will be holy and spend eternity in the presence of Jesus. And all non-worshippers will be unholy. And will spend eternity apart from the grace and the mercy and the love of Christ. Where they will only know his wrath and judgment. To them, to unbelievers, holiness is terrifying. But to us who believe, to us who worship Jesus as our king, holiness is a blessing, it is an encouragement. Now, when you look at these verses, you may be thinking to yourself, well, it seems to imply that some of God's enemies will survive the coming of Jesus. Well, that is true. There will be survivors from all nations. But let me ask you a question. Every one of us were at one time enemies of God. At one time, we were not worshipers of the true king. So how then do we know we're going to survive the day of the Lord? Well, the answer is that we have been saved. We have been rescued and redeemed. You see, the the only way to survive the coming of the Lord is through conversion. Jesus took God's wrath and judgment upon himself, and we've been spared and we've been set apart as holy. Jesus is our only hope. To drive this point home further, Zechariah brings up a hypothetical question or a hypothetical argument in verses 17 through 19. Because it's important, one thing that's important for us to understand is that once Jesus comes, once his kingdom is established fully in all its glory, there will be no way that anyone could resist or reject him at that point in time. And not only that, but our hearts are going to be so fully changed that we'll not have the desire to stray from him. Jesus will rule with absolute sovereignty and authority. But what Zechariah is doing here, he's saying, let's just say for a moment that it it is true. That it will be true that in new heavens and new earth, someone can finally turn around and reject Jesus. What would happen? Well, if someone decides to no longer worship the king, Jesus will send them a drought. If that doesn't work, he will send them a plague. Now, he's alluding to two past events here. The first one is, is back with Elijah. During the days of Elijah, God sent a drought on the land for three years. And despite that fact, people still didn't fully repent and follow God. The other example he's alluding to here is in the days of Moses, God sent many plagues against Egypt. But they too didn't fully repent and did not worship God. This is why the prophets often lamented. How long? How long can people disobey God? How long can people worship other gods? How long will God allow the nations to reject his authority? Well, the answer to that question is only until Jesus returns. Once Jesus comes, every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. You see, there is a limit to God's patience and grace. R.C. Sproul says this, God's grace is not infinite. God is infinite and God is gracious. We experience the grace of an infinite God, but grace is not infinite. God sets limits to his patience and forbearance. He warns us over and over again that someday the axe will fall and his judgment will be poured out. That is one of the points Zachariah is trying to make here. Jesus is coming. When he comes, he will judge all who do not worship him. And he will welcome all who do worship him into the splendor of his holiness. where We will fellowship with him for all eternity. The question for you this morning is do you worship Jesus as your king? Do you worship him? Because if the answer is no, then these words are scary. These words are sobering because they are a warning to you. But as I said earlier, it is not too late. Repent and follow Jesus. But if the answer to that question is yes, then these words are incredibly encouraging. You have great hope. Jesus is your king and he will return and you will live for all eternity in his presence. Therefore, praise God, rejoice in your salvation and continue to worship him as king. That really is the main application of this passage, of this chapter of Zechariah, is to worship Jesus as king. Because that is our only hope. Jesus is our only hope. But there are other things that we can learn from here as well. There's other ways we can apply this passage. For example... One of the things that we see here is that judgment and vengeance belong to the Lord. You see, far too often we as Christians like to pick up God's sword and, in a sense, smite our enemies. We like to bring vengeance into our own hands. But the gospel frees us from that. God will judge his enemies, he will bring vengeance in his way and at his time. He will make all things right. We don't have to take that on ourselves. Rather, we can distrust him with that. And we can get on with the work of the gospel. We can, instead of judging people and taking vengeance upon them, we do need to tell them the truth. But we can love them and we can invite them into the fellowship of the king. Another way we can apply this passage is that um, that if, if we truly believe the words here, particularly about what it says about those that do not worship Jesus as king, this should give us compassion for those friends and family members that we know that that don't know Jesus. We should be zealous about sharing the gospel with them because Jesus is their only hope. So let us pray that God would grant us a greater compassion for the lost and a greater boldness to share the good news of Jesus with those that don't know him. And then finally, this passage is a call for us to pursue holiness now. Someone once said that holiness in eternity is inseparable from the pursuit of holiness in life. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.4 that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. As Christians, we were chosen to be holy. We've been given the Holy Spirit to make us holy. And we now have the promise that we will be holy to the Lord when Jesus returns. So let us now, with utter dependence upon God, seek to be holy in all areas of our life. You know, there are many good things that we pursue in life. But is holiness chief among them? Let me leave you with these words from Robert Trail. He says this, Do not deceive your own souls. Holiness is of absolute necessity. It is not absolutely necessary that you should be great or rich in this world. But it is absolutely necessary that you should be holy. It is not absolutely necessary that you should enjoy health, strength, friends, liberty, life, But it is absolutely necessary that you should be holy. A man may see the Lord without worldly prosperity, but he can never see the Lord except he be holy. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Lord, these are hard words to hear. It's hard to be reminded of judgment and of your wrath. But Lord, we do thank you. We thank you with all of our hearts and minds and souls that we have been spared. But I pray for anyone here that doesn't know Jesus, anyone here who is not a worshiper, I pray that today would be the day that you would work in and through them, that they would repent and come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that they would come to be worshipers of the King. And for those of us who do know you, Lord, I pray that we'd be greatly encouraged, that we'd be reminded that you will return And that when you return, you will judge all your enemies. You will set all things right. And you will establish your kingdom forever. And it will be a kingdom of peace and joy and righteousness and holiness. Lord, I pray that you would use these words to encourage us to be bold in sharing the gospel with those that don't know you. That you would give us a greater compassion for those that are lost. Lord, I pray that you would also use this to motivate us to pursue holiness in our life now, knowing that we have the great promise that when you return, We will be holy to the Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.